I'd invite you this morning uh, to take a Bible and turn again. Uh, we are in this season looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Today we find ourselves in the 18th chapter. The text for this morning from the Gospels is Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15 and going through verse 20. If you're with us and present in the sanctuary this morning and able to stand, I'd invite you to do that in honor of the Lord's Word. And Jesus said, If your brother or sister sins against you, go and correct them when you are alone together. If they listen to you, then you've won over your brother or sister. But if they won't listen, take with you one or two others so that every word may be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. But if they still won't pay attention, report it to the church. If they won't pay attention even to the church, treat them as you would a Gentile and tax collector. I assure you that whatever you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven, and whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. Again, I assure you that if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, then my Father who is in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I'm kind of cranky this morning. I don't really like this text very much. I read it with vigor, but that was just to compensate for how much I don't like the text. Um, and so I wouldn't blame you if you logged off right now and that kind of stuff. Um, don't walk out. That's kind of rude. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, text or do whatever you need to do. Um, the reason I'm kind of frustrated is as we've been going along, we've been following the lectionary text for the season, and if you were with us the last few weeks, we stopped, we kind of left off in chapter 16. So if you have your Bible open, you can turn to chapter 16. We left off with two great texts, Jesus saying, who do people say that I am? But That's great, but who do you say that I am? Peter gets the right answer, you're Messiah. And then last week, that wonderful text where the get behind me text, take up your cross text and come and follow me. So powerful, so good. And then the lectionary just skips like all of chapter 17. So it skips the transfiguration or transformation of Jesus. It doesn't do that because it doesn't like that text. It does that because we look at that at another season of the year. And so we've already looked at it, so it jumps that. It jumps over a text about not causing little ones to stumble, which would have been good, you know. Or actually, it jumps over the faith like a mustard seed, which we could have gotten a good offering today. It jumps over the text about paying, paying taxes, which would have been such a good sermon in an election year. Um, and it jumps into chapter 18. So I have said to you uh, who've been with us, the Gospel of Matthew is trying to re-narrate the life of Jesus through the history of God's people, and in particular through the life of Abraham, David, and then the exile. And part of what Matthew does is he blocks five major sections of teaching t- and he gives us those, many scholars think, as a way to kind of re-narrate also the Torah, the five books of the law. And so for those of you who are kind of scholarly and love this stuff, chapter 18 is essentially the beginning of that fourth block of teaching. The first is the Sermon on the Mount. We get a couple others, and this is that fourth block. And in this fourth major block of teaching, the disciples ask an important question. Okay, as we go to Jerusalem, as you establish your kingdom, who is greatest in the kingdom? In part, it's probably a selfish question. We'd kind of like to be on that list. So help us. 
um, who is the greatest? And that's where Jesus talks about welcoming a child, don't causing little ones to stumble. The lectionary could have started at verse 10, the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd who leaves the flock to go find that lost sheep. Such a great text. We could have an altar call. But no, it had to stop here on this text about conflict. A text we oftentimes talk about and gets taught as the Matthew 18 principle. So if you're new to the church and somebody ever quotes to you, well, you know, Matthew 18, this is what they mean. The Matthew 18 principle about how to resolve conflict. And here's the reasons why I don't really like this text very much. You'll have to forgive me because the Bible says you have to. Um, this, this, the text we skipped says you have to. Um, but I don't really like this text in part because I don't like, I don't like conflict. I don't like confrontation. So sometimes I read this text as though I should be having more conflict than I have. I'm not a person who likes it, but there's some people I should be confronting about their sin. And that's not really me. I hate conflict so much. If I live in a community of conflict, I will pick up my family and we will move across the nation. I am telling you right now. Worse than people like me who feel guilty about this text are those of you who love this text. You've been waiting for somebody to confront, and Jesus just told you, go get them. You have a whole long list of people, and oh, it's delightful. Now you can do it in the name of Jesus. Frankly, I'm a little shocked that we think this text is that important, as though we needed Jesus to tell us how to do this. Part of me wants to say, this is just good parenting. When your children come to you and say, hey, my brother's doing this, we say to them, did you talk about this with your brother? And they say, well, no. And they say, then go away, you tattletale. Go fix it, and if you have problems, then come back. And talk to mom. She loves conflict. Don't talk to dad. He won't do anything. But in some ways, it's just kind of common sense that we should deal with problems so that they don't blow up on us. We should deal with them privately first and then with maybe a little larger group of people who can help us. And then if we don't get that solved, then we can kind of make a big deal out of it. And frankly, I'm not sure why we needed Jesus to tell us that one, but, but we love that he did. But here's the main reason why this text is frustrating to me and why I don't like to preach on it very much. And it's really the big reason. It's that I am convinced that our imagination of what church means makes this text really problematic for us. And because we imagine church very differently than the way the people Jesus is addressing it thought of church it actually becomes a very devastating and sometimes a very destructive principle when it's used in the ways that we imagine church. Are you with me? So how do we imagine church? Well, for them, <laughs> the word church meant a small family unit that you have given yourselves in, yourself into. You have been baptized into this, this close-knit group of people. Uh, the word church, by the way, uh, only shows up twice in all four Gospels. 
Both times in Matthew, we saw it the first time a couple of weeks ago when Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And now Jesus says it again, when you're having conflict, then bring the church together if you can't resolve it. But the people understood kind of church this way. In a, in a city like Philippi, for example, there probably would not be more than one or maybe two family kind of groups meeting together, calling themselves followers of Jesus or followers of the way, and they were people who had committed themselves to one another, were transparent with each other as Jesus would say, who are my mother and my brothers? These people are my mother and my brothers. So this is a, a family conflict, and you are thinking about it as family, and you don't really have options. If you get kicked out of this family, there's nowhere else for you to go. And so this is important to be able to resolve this family conflict and not divide the family in two. That is not really the way that we think of church. We think of church largely this way. Some of you this morning are customers of this particular church, whether online or here. And maybe you've advanced beyond customer to stockholder. Um... When my dad was living, he loved Costco. He loved Costco. It was like a trip to Disneyland for him. But he loved Costco in part because it was made in Seattle where he loves and thinks of his home. But he loves Costco in part because for a long time he was a stockholder in Costco. And so every time you go to Costco and the lines would be really long, he'd go, this is awesome, right? Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. He's spending money and making money all at the same time. And so the long lines meant good news if you are not just a customer but a stockholder at Costco. And so some of you are not just customers. Some of you really are stockholders. You've invested a lot of time, energy, resource into this place called College Church. And so you're not just a customer. You're a stockholder. Ministers, we're kind of hired managers, one of my favorite books on ministry says, Pastor, remember this. When you are called to a church, you are being invited to, to lead someone else's family reunion. They haven't decided if you're family or not. But in so many ways, those of us who are on pastoral staff, we're kind of managers, right? And especially in this day and age where we are so shaped by individualism and consumerism, then we think about church largely in those kinds of terms. So sometimes this text works if we pay really close attention to the idea that Jesus says, when someone sins against you. So sometimes even in our model of church, someone will come to another brother or sister in Christ and say, I'm really concerned about this direction of your life and where that is going. And we will receive that in the spirit with which it is intended. And it is about the sinfulness of our life. And we're able to repent of that. And, and sometimes it can be used very constructively. But a lot of times, especially in our form of church, sin becomes a broad category for things that just irritate me. Or things that aren't the way we've gotten used to. Or things that sound different than the way my grandfather used to preach them. So from the pastor-manager side, the problem with this text is this. Whenever I feel like I have to confront a brother or sister in Christ, I have to do a kind of manager-pastor calculus to say, but if this goes bad, I may lose a customer. And every year I have to tell how many customers we gained and how many we lost. 
And also, it really hurts me when we lose customers, especially if they're stockholders and major stockholders. And it really doesn't work because you have options. So if I go back to Costco for a minute, I was talking to a, a friend who works at another kind of major department store, and part of his job right now is to watch people as they come in to enforce the mask policy. And so he's telling me about a number of conversations that he's had over the last month or so. But he's telling me about this typical conversation. You can imagine it. A customer comes in without wearing a mask, and the, this person says to him, sir, we have a policy here right now that you have to have a face covering to shop here. And the person tells him something really nice and then walks away and does nothing about that, right? So what does my friend do? Then he goes and gets two other people, witnesses, the manager and the security guard, and they go talk to him and say, sir, we have a policy here. This is what you have to do. And by the way, not even that caused compliance, right? So it's now, well, I will take my business elsewhere. Because if this is Walmart in the example, I will just go to Target and see if I can sneak by their person. And if I can't get in at Target, I will go to Fred Meyer. And if I can't go to Fred Meyer, I will move to a new country. I, I don't know what you'll do, but eventually you run out of stores. But here's the problem when you're a pastor manager. You're afraid that conflict, first of all, will lose you a stockholder or a customer. But here's the thing. You know they can kind of go, well, if this is the way I'm going to be talked to at this kind of place, I will just go to fill in the blank church all over the place here. Which is really fun when you're a pastor or manager because it means people come from those places having never changed. But that's another sermon. So, um, but from your side, from the customer stockholder side, it's also really frustrating because when you feel like there are real issues and you want to meet with a pastor manager, let me give you a hint. First, don't talk directly to them. Ignore Jesus a little bit. You'll probably do the same way. Talk to a few people first just in case the conversation goes badly. And if that conversation goes badly, immediately then leave the office and call the people that you've already talked to and say, well, it went badly. Because here's what the pastor manager is going to do. They're going to go, oh, no, they've already talked to people about this. I need to talk to people about this who will be on my side. And what immediately happens is what we think are two or three, actually becomes coalition building, and then we have a wonderful church meeting, and one group yells at the other group, and this is how churches get planted in our denomination. <laughs> and so I don't really like this text. Because it doesn't really fit our imagination for church. Because if church for us is customer, stockholder, pastor, manager, then these conflicts aren't really about resolving sin more often than not. They're really about preferences and frustrations and leadership styles, and it becomes the source of coalition building and conflict, and usually division. So this text won't work unless we have a different imagination about the church. And even if we had that, even if we had a different imagination about the church, in our day and age, it would, it would mean that we would have to have people who are willing to submit themselves to that imagination of church. 
a people who are willing to say, I am not what I should be yet, but I believe this people can help me by God's power and by God's spirit to become what God wants me to be, and I'm willing to be a disciple, which means willing to submit myself to discipline at times. Sometimes from another brother or sister in Christ who loves me, sometimes from two or three brothers and sisters in Christ who love me, and sometimes from a group I didn't realize were going to love me in that kind of way, but I'm willing to be disciplined and be shaped by that. It would take people willing to do that. And so my question that I want to wrestle with for just a few minutes this morning is this. What would it take for us to be the community that people would be willing to submit themselves to? Can I say that again? Because now the sermon's going to get good. What would it take for us to be a community that people would be willing to submit themselves to that kind of discipline and thus make something like Matthew 18 relevant again, usable again? What would it take? If you have your Bible still open, go with me to verse 20 again. For where two or three are gathered in my name, what? I'm there with them. In order to be the kind of community that would make Matthew 18 relevant, people would have to be convinced that when this group of people gather together, the fundamental reality of their gathering is this, that Jesus is in the center of it. It is not the gathering of a religious organization. It is not the gathering of religious consumers. It is not the gathering of people who just want to have a nice community and this is part of it. It is a, it would, it would, require a mystical reality that when two or three people devoted to Christ are gathered in Christ's name, Christ is there in their midst. And therefore, the confrontation that is taking place is not one person's opinion against another's. It is Christ who sits in the judgment seat, not me. And this community then is in love discerning how Christ would view the other's life. Did you follow that? And if Christ is in the center, then secondly, it would take this. It would take people who would believe that when those kinds of moments of growth and confrontation and conflict take place, it would be done in the gentleness of the presence of Jesus. So if you still have your Bible, put your finger in Matthew 18 and go with me to Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes to the church who apparently is participating and practicing some of Matthew 18 in that community of family. So much so that Paul can address them like family. Chapter 6 of Galatians verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if a person is caught doing something wrong, and this is a very important condition, you who are spiritual... If I could, I I would put it this way. You who can discern that Christ is Lord and Christ is present. You who are spiritual should restore someone like this, and you should underline this next line, with a spirit of gentleness. You see, in order to be the kind of community that would have a different imagination about what it means to be church and would 
do that in such a way that there would be people who would be willing to submit themselves to the discipline of that kind of community. Christ would have to be center every time we gathered, and we would have to care for each other and even confront each other in the kind of spirit of gentleness that reflects the spirit of Jesus. Some of you know everybody in my family are ministers. There's a story that one of my aunts and uncles tells. They were pastoring a church, and they were in the middle of conflict, and they were having a Matthew 18 meeting. And my aunt said to this person who they were having conflict with, it got kind of heated and tense, and some things were said that probably were not things you'd want to say if Jesus were present in the midst of you. So she looked at him and she said, we need to take a breath and step back here because I don't think Jesus would approve of the way this conversation is turned. And the man looked at her and said, I don't care what Jesus would think. Yo! And just goes right on. I know sometimes we feel that way, but when we are a people who gather and Christ is in our midst and brothers and sisters, as we correct each other, we do that in the gentleness of Christ. And third... If we were that kind of community, a kind of community people would want to submit themselves in that kind of discipline, we would have to be a community that would take with the utmost seriousness and sincerity our witness in the world. You see, the reason Matthew 18 is there is not because it irritates us if there are people in our community, in our family, who are intentionally sinning. It is that when that happens, we, as too often happens in the church, we are perceived by the world as hypocritical, as people unwilling to submit ourselves to the authority and lordship of Jesus as we are proclaiming and telling people, you should submit yourself to the authority and lordship of Jesus. Just don't pay attention to how we're doing that. And so the reason for us doing that is because we're, we are taking seriously our witness in the world, but this is really important, lean in. But that witness is not a kind of legalistic purity. For then we look like Pharisees. That witness to the world is holy love. It's why, if I could back up, chapter 18 is so critical about doing this. Don't harm little ones. It is not about, don't be seen with sinners. It is be careful in the way that you are reflecting this to others that you do not damage those little ones in faith who are just now leaning in, believing that a new creation has come, that a people can be filled with the Spirit and the old can be put away and the new could come. Do not damage that. And so we would have to be a community that took that with seriousness and commitment. And finally, in order for this to make sense, we'd have to have a different imagination of church. We'd have to be a community people were willing to submit themselves to that kind of discipline and care. But we'd have to be the kind of community That if we got to the end of those conversations and said, we love you, but we take our witness to the world seriously, and we need you to break fellowship with us. 
that it would be done in such a way and the people would receive it in such a way that it would not be, oh, well, I'll just shop for my religious goods elsewhere. Let's give the Presbyterians a try. But it would be heartbreaking for us Because this brother or sister in whom we believe so deeply, who is formed in the image of God, for whom God has purposes and intentions to glorify him in the world, refuse to follow that and must be, has to break fellowship with us. But for that person, they would leave knowing not that they had been damaged or hurt or yelled at. But again, sometimes like good parenting. A community that had loved them, cared for them, prayed for them, believed the best of them. Could not bear to see them continue to head down such a destructive path. And even if they chose to leave, they would leave in the knowledge that they had been loved. And they had been loved by a love that if they choose, like the prodigal, to turn around and say, I don't want that anymore, I want that. That community would say, like you would say to a tax collector or a Gentile who had found Christ, come on, come on, come on, come on. I don't like this text very much. For it invites me into a level of accountability with you that makes me uncomfortable. I don't like this text very much because for some of you, it is the permission you needed to get angry and you wanted, you needed an outlet anyway. But truly, I struggle with this text because I am not sure that we have the imagination for being the kind of community that could live it out in the kind of community and family and with the spirit Jesus intended. But if we could do that, if every time we gather together and as we gather around this table, we knew that we knew that we knew that the true leader of this congregation was Christ who is present in our midst and is the gentleness of Christ that leads us to interact with one another, And the people that I had committed myself to and submitted myself and discipline to were forming me out of a love that flows from the love of Christ. And I believe we could hear the words of Jesus <laughs> to care for each other, to keep each other on the road of life, to join together as family to hear each other, even when we needed to have hard conversations with each other. And for that not always to have to end in anger and bitterness and division, but perhaps it could end in healing and restoration and reconciliation 
and the witness to the world would be, there is a people in whom Christ dwells and who embody the love of the family of God. This morning, as we close the service appropriately, we come around the table. It's a little bit different than we normally come around because of our limitations. Um, I'm going to invite you in just a moment. We're going to sing a song as we prepare our hearts and invite you as we do that to do two things. If you have not received communion elements this morning, if you would just slip your hand up and Usher will come and make sure that you have them. But as we sing, I, I would invite you to prepare not just your heart, but prepare the element to remove the top off and um, to prepare the bread and cup for us to take this together. God, help us. Um, as we gather around this table, may it be what we're just about to sing about. May we gather here in your name, knowing that we are a family, learning to love each other, and sometimes the difficulty of love, but learning how to talk and deal and wrestle and shape one another with you as Lord in the gentleness of your spirit with the hope that you're making us new. And so we submit ourselves to you as Lord and Christ and we submit ourselves to one another. Teach us how to be instruments of your grace to each other as we participate in these instruments of grace today. Let's sing together as we prepare. We